you'll remain standing with me as we go into reading today's scripture text. If you'll remember, we're dealing in uh, Genesis, and Jacob has blessed his younger son, and uh, we see going into this passage, he's uh, sent him back to um, family back out of Canaan to uh, take a wife for um, for or excuse me for Jacob, and then he's going to uh, bless him as he goes. And now here's we take up here as Jacob's on the road. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and, it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And, if, and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that this morning, that this word that you've given us in this text will become part of our story. We see the story of how you worked in the history uh, of your people, and you've engrafted us into that story. I pray that you'd be with us as we hear, and we'd be effectual doers of the word that you give us. And you would also be with Pastor Andrew as he proclaims that which you've already shown him. We pray, O oh Lord God, that you would make us a people which uh, is so in love with you that our daily routine would be so ridiculously evident to others that uh, all people would know that they have met with the Lord God. And so we do this morning because of Jesus and in his name, amen. Please be seated. 
Well, good morning. It's great to be together. It's a highlight of the week to open God's Word together. One writer said, uh, this time is the moment of truth. It's when God opens up His Word in the community of people and, and pours out heaping portions of grace. May that be so this morning. I want to share with you to start an open letter. It's written by a young lady named Jessie Rice. And the letter is this. Dear fear of what others think, I'm sick of you. And it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously fear of others, what others think. This is it. We are breaking up. I feel like there's a Taylor Swift song that should go right there. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, funny, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hope that they will like me, accept me, praise me. I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder. Like me, like me, like me. Because of you, fear of what others might think, I go through day, my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I never stop acting. The spotlight is always on, and I'm on center stage, and I'd better keep dancing. I better keep posturing, mugging, or else the spotlight will move, and I will dissolve into a little meaningless puddle on the ground, just like that witch in The Wizard of Oz. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the one that lives only in my head, but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. Anybody relate at all to Ms. Rice, fear of what others might or must be thinking about us? That overall topic of fear is one that maybe you picked up in the liturgy so far, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the God is with us, of whom shall we be afraid, the angel speaking to Mary saying, do not be afraid. Fear is underlying all of our experience as, as humans. Um, Khaled Hosseini wrote uh, A Thousand Splendid Sons, Kite Runner. He also wrote another book called um, and the mountains echoed, and he says in there, he says, it's a funny thing, Marcos, there's two characters interacting, but people mostly have it backward. They think they live but what, by what they want, but what really guides them is what they are afraid of. Is that true for you? Have you been courageous enough maybe to examine that? Uh, I think we'll find that there is a lot of truth and a lot of humanity uh, tied up with that thought. Whether it's the fear of what others might think of us, or whether it's the fear of what our future is, or uh, the fear of what this diagnosis will cause me, whatever the fear might be underlying, you know, that, that fear underlines, and so much of what we do is in response to the fear. We see that here in this passage. Uh, as, as Jacob is heading out from the promised land, 
there is fear that is driving him. If you go back to uh, verse 41 of chapter 27, you know, last week we saw how Jacob and Esau uh, had done battle, so to speak, for the blessings, for the birthright. And uh, Jacob had tricked and deceived, saw that there was a, a whole lot of bad acting going on in that particular passage. Now it says, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebe Rebekah. So she sent and she called Jacob, her younger son, and she said to him, Behold, your brother comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. That's how he's feeling better. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until his anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I'll send and bring you from there. Why should I lose you both in one day? Fear is driving Jacob. Fear is driving Rebekah. I would argue that fear is driving Esau, and fear is driving Isaac as well. And one of the, the what I want to, what I want us to explore this morning is, is how God meets us even in the midst of our fear, or maybe put it a different way, how God meets us especially in the midst of our fear. Because again, these stories aren't about good humans who God decides to bind himself to and give them a blessing because they're good, right? Uh, these are people who God meets in some of the most vulnerable, uh, some of the most raw places that a human can be. What do I mean? Well, let's explore. Banished. Uh, Jacob is banished from the promised land. He's driven away to a certain degree by his brother Esau. Uh, fear is what marks this. I've said before, we see it introduced there. Uh, we see that it's a continuing theme. If you look in uh, chapter 32, you see that Jacob is now coming back into the land. Verse 7, verse 11 of chapter 32, uh, you know, he is saying to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers and the children. It is bracketed, this section here is bracketed by fear. Uh, there are some other things that mark this out as a unit. Uh, angels meet Jacob in both places. Angels meet him here in Bethel, as we'll see in just a minute. They also meet him just before he wrestles with God, chapter 32, uh, at, the, at the river Jabbok. Uh, some of you remember that. You know, and then right in the center is, uh, is Jacob being in the land away from Canaan with his uncle Laban. But we definitely have a unit here. Uh, fear, angels, and then his being with Laban. So fear, you know, the, the author wants us to deal with fear. And notice, too, that there are two kinds of fear. There's fear of man, fear of what others may think, what others may do to us. And then, uh, we've talked about that with, with Jacob, and then there's also fear of God. Did you pick up that in verse 17? And Jacob was afraid when he saw this dream and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. 
And this is the very gate of heaven. So in a certain sense, the question isn't, you know, should we fear or should we be driven by fear? In many ways, the question is, what is our fear? You know, are, are we fearing the right things? You know, are we fearing God who is holy uh, and wholly other than us? Or is our fear placed on the finite things of this world that, you know, as we see throughout the scriptures, they, they don't hold final sway over us. Uh, so where is our fear? And notice, too, the results of fear are not good. You know, Esau is angry. Uh, I said Esau is afraid. He has now been without the blessing. Uh, he, Jacob, or Isaac has no blessing left to give him. We saw that last week. <coughs> and so he acts out his vulnerable place. So here I am now. I am a son without a blessing, right? What do I do in that vulnerable place? Should he go to God? I mean, what would happen if he went to God? We know that God would receive him, that God would speak to him, that God would comfort him, but he gets angry and he looks outward and he blames Jacob and, and he wants to kill Jacob. Isaac, you know, we saw last week that God came and, and touched him in a very significant way. You know, when he started trembling, there was that, we called it a grace quake uh, that took place in Isaac. But now how does he respond? Does he begin to be the leader of the household that he had failed to be? Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, here he's got one son who's murderously angry about another son. He's got another son who has just cheated and deceived him. He's got a wife uh, who has, uh, you know, manipulated the situation. So he calls a family meeting, right? And he says, look it, we need to talk. And it needs to start with me. I've screwed up as a father. I, I've messed up. Jacob or Isaac doesn't do that, does he? He just kind of sticks his head in the sand. And he goes along with what Rebecca's saying again. And, and he sends Jacob away. Now, there's some mixture in here. He does give him the blessing of Abraham, which I think is a step forward. Remember, there is some faith with, uh, with Isaac, and, and so he, he recognizes God's hand is at work, so there's some positive. He does send Jacob back to get a wife outside of the Canaanites, which again is a good thing, so it's not all bad, but we have to recognize that he's, he's not operating in faith completely, right? He's still got his head in the sand. Rebecca, of course, what does she do with her fear when she sees the son who she loves, her son? Remember the language of the text? She starts to overfunction. Anybody relate to that? Uh, you get, uh, you have fear come up, and so what do you do? You just lock down, and you start to control, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and this is how we're going to manage this, and we start to overfunction in, in the face of our fear. And Jacob, what does he do? He gets out of there. Uh, he just runs. And, and, you know, we too relate. My guess is somewhere along the line, whether it's the anger of Esau, uh, the burying your head of Isaac, the overfunctioning of Rebekah, or the fleeing of Jacob, we can relate to one of those responses uh, as our primary response to fear. 
Uh, we can relate to that. You know, I think about some of the things that drive us uh, fearfully. You know, as a young person, you, you maybe are afraid of, you certainly can relate to being afraid of what others may think. That incidentally never goes away, does it? I kind of hoped that I'd be over with that once I got out of junior high. <laughs> Didn't happen. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, you know, that's something that you, we deal with probably all of our life. Uh, what are others going to think of us? So we have that fear. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to get angry? Are we going to flee it? Are we going to take it before the Lord? And are we going to deal with it honestly? What about just the uncertainty of our life? Again, I think of young people to a certain degree. Where are you going to go? What career are you going to take? Who are you going to marry? Uh, how is, it, you know, what, what sort of standard of living? How much money are you going to have? Are you going to we, we fear these things, so we either overfunction or we get married, angry and blame people or we just, you know, refuse to deal with it. We flee, you know, whether it's alcohol or drugs or there's all sorts of pornography. There's all sorts of ways that we flee our fears, right? We can do that. But there, there are things that are old age, too. I was uh, heard, heard um, D.A. Carson talk about his father. And uh, his father lost his wife uh, probably 15 or so years before he died. Uh, and then uh, he, was, uh, he was a pastor and just a pretty honest man, kept a journal. And one day Carson was looking through his father's journal and he saw that his, his father had written, you know, forgive me for the sins of old age. A and then he talked about things like, living, hanging on too much to the past, uh, self-pity, uh, whining over ailments, you know, the various things that he was wrestling with at that particular time. And it just was a reminder to me that, you know, we fear as we get older, uh, as we walk forward. Now our lives are changing. We don't have our job that gives us our identity. Where are we going to find our identity. Maybe you don't have your spouse or good friends or some of the support network that you had before. Uh, how do you use your time, you know, when those things are gone? You know, do we flee? Do we take it to the Lord? All along the way, this is my point, all along the way, we, we find ourselves uh, bearing the threat of banishment from the presence of the Lord, driven away by our fear. And, and so the text is encouraging us to be honest about that. Why? What is our hope? How can we be honest? Well, because we live in a Betel world, not a Bebel world. Uh, you know, in Hebrew, they don't use vowels. Uh, they just use consonants to, to make words. And uh, there's a big difference between a consonant here and there. And I think in many ways, the, again, the author of the text, you know, as God lays this out, he wants us to recognize the difference between Bethel and Bebel. Bebel, you might recognize as Babel, right? What do you remember about Babel in Genesis chapter 11? Babel was man's attempt to reach God right? They were building this giant ziggurat. They were building a stairway to heaven. 
And they were climbing the stairway to heaven. It was their effort, their ingenuity. We are the ones that are going to be able to get from earth to heaven, from us to God. You have something very different that is going on here in Genesis chapter 28. Because it is not Jacob who is trying to get to God. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, I mean, J Jacob isn't even a pilgrim at this point, right? He is a fugitive. He is running from God. He is running from the responsibility of, of holding the birthright. I mean, the birthright was the one who was supposed to care for the family, right? He was the one that was supposed to be responsible and carry on the family name. And, and Jacob was running, getting away from that. So he's not a pilgrim. A pilgrim, he's a fugitive. And it's in that that God comes to him. And there is all the difference in the world between our trying to get to God and God's breaking in and getting to us. This is the heart of what we mean by the gospel. This is the heart of grace, not what we have done, not what we have earned, not what we deserve, but what God does to us even in the midst of our vulnerability, of our fear, of our flight, God comes and displays grace. One writer puts it this way. He says, it's, this is a display of divine grace, this dream, this interaction uh, that God brings into Jacob's life. Unsought, for Jacob was no pilgrim or returning prodigal, yet God came out to meet him, an angelic retinue and all, taking him wholly by surprise. And it was unstinted. There was no word of reproach or demand, only a stream of assurances flowing from the central, I am the Lord, to spread from the past to the future, from the spot where Jacob lay to the four corners of, his earth, from, of the earth, from his person to all of mankind. Do you see the gracious way that God met him here? There's something even in the way that the, the stairway is pictured. Ladder's probably not the best translation of it. Probably something uh, along the lines of a ziggurat uh, similar to what was being built in, uh, in Genesis chapter 11. You don't really see commerce, you know, angels going up and down on a ladder as much as you would on a stairway of that sort. But this is a stairway that reaches from heaven and is set on earth. And it's such a beautiful picture. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel because who is it that takes this very imagery for himself? John chapter 1, verse 51. You know, Jesus meets uh, Nathaniel under a fig tree and he says, look it. And Nathaniel's amazed that he's able to tell him his name. He says, I I'm going to show you even greater things than that. Because you will see <coughs> in me, in the Son of Man, angels, and de and, and angels ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. You see, this is exactly the picture of the incarnation. It is God coming to earth. 
to an undeserving earth, to an earth wrapped in fear, to an earth that is in flight headlong away from God. It is God breaking in to that situation and saying, I am going to bring grace to those who don't deserve grace. And I am going to be with those who don't deserve my presence. And I'm going to make promises to those who don't deserve to receive blessing. That is what Christ came to do. And and we recognize that all of our fears are banished in him. All of our fears are taken away because he conquers our enemies. He makes us, gives us a place with God. We have fellowship and peace with the living God. We don't have to run anymore because Jesus is this stairway. He is the one that has come from heaven to earth. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel here. And one of the other things that I really love about this is, is just how vulnerable Jacob is at this point. And, and I hope that this encourages many of you this morning. Because Jacob is filled with shame over what he has done. He is running from his family. He is racked by his fears. He is asleep, alone, in the middle of the wilderness, with no possessions, using a rock for a pillow. Can you get any more vulnerable? And this is where God comes to him. You know, God sees him, and this is a theme all throughout the scriptures, right? So if that's where you are, I I know it's not pleasant, but, but be encouraged. You know, be encouraged because that is where God delights to meet his people. He delights to meet them in the raw, vulnerable, lonely places. If you've got everything together, You know, if you're riding high, well, you don't need God so much then, right? you're, You're managing it on your own. But if you're lonely, beset by shame, guilt, fear, any of these things, it's a great place for God to come and to meet you. And notice, finally, that God doesn't only meet him, but he binds himself to this treacherous fugitive. Those aren't my words. Those are, um, I think Brueggemann uses those words. Uh, This treacherous fugitive uh, on the run. He's not safe. And God comes and he binds himself to this one. uh, Both by this picture that we've already seen. This this picture of, of Bethel, God with us, being in the house of God but then also by his promise. In verses 13 and 14, you sort of have the uh, traditional patriarchal formula. Um, The Lord stood above it, and it's the Lord. It's not God. It's the personal name uh, for Yahweh. Israel relates to the Lord by way of a covenant. This is his covenant name. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the God 
of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land which you lie, I'll give to your offspring. So there's the promise of him being his God, the promise of the land, the promise of offspring. Pretty traditional that we've seen that with Abraham, Isaac, and, and now Jacob again. But then verse 15. Verse 15 is such a, uh, is such a key verse. He says, behold, he gets very personal with Jacob here. And he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. There's three really significant promises that God makes to Jacob personally. He promises him his presence. Behold, I am with you. He promises him his protection. You know, I will keep you. It's not just walking alongside whatever happens, happens. No, he's, he's protecting him. He is the guard. He will keep you. This language is all throughout the, the Old Testament. The psalmist talks about it. Saw some of it in the call to worship. Look at Psalm 23. Very much echoes these promises of God. And then he says, I will return you. I will give you the homecoming that your heart is longing for. I will bring you back to this land. And you know what? All of those promises are yes and amen in Christ. In Christ, we meet Emmanuel, the God who is with us. We, he takes up residence in us. He, he'll never leave us, never forsake us. We, we have that promise. We have the promise of his protection. He is the king who defends and defeats all his and our enemies. There is no enemy that can stand before Christ the King. He will keep us even until the very end of our age. Remember in Jude where uh, he says he will keep you and not cause your foot to stumble until he presents you holy and blameless with great joy before the presence of the Father. I mean, we have that promise that He'll keep you. Nothing can harm you. And then there is that homecoming, right? Because all of us live sort of with the echoes of Eden. I mean, we, we, we know that we are displaced here in this world. We, we know that we were made for something bigger, something more beautiful, something that you know, we, we see in, in pictures and photographs that capture beauty. We, we read it in good literature. We hear it in poetry. We sing it in song. When we come to the table, we taste it. We, we know that we were not made simply for this existence that we have, but there is something more beautiful and more full. And he says, I promise, I promise, I am going to take you into that land. He binds himself to this treacherous fugitive. It is amazing, amazing grace. And we have those same promises. And what does Jacob do? Jacob worships. You know, what, what do you do when you meet God like that? What do, you, what do you do when you realize the overwhelming goodness of this God who comes to us when we don't deserve? What do you do? Well, I think there's something to what Jacob does here. He makes a sacred place. You know, he names this place, verse 19, Bethel. He sets up a stone. He makes a shrine. And, and, and this, 
it becomes very significant. If you look over in, in chapter 35, you'll see that, you know, God wants to reassert his promises to Jacob. And so what does he do? He says, come with me to Bethel. And, and Jacob takes his whole, and this was not a small thing in those days, right? He takes his whole band and they go over to Bethel and God reestablishes his promises there. Why? The place was sacred. You know, something happened there. There was a sealing. And in a certain sense, we experience that each week when we come to this place, right, where God renews his covenant with us, as it were. We see this in a number of different places. Joshua sets up a stone, makes a sacred place. They renew the covenant, you know, as they are going into the land. And, and so part of what we need to anticipate week by week is that God is bringing us here not because this place is holy in and of itself, but because God has, has just laid it out to say, you know, weekly I want you to get together with the God's people in a place and I'm going to renew my covenant with you. Jacob says sacred words. He says, okay, if this is who you are, God, and it's not a conditional if, it's not like, God, if you do this, then I will do this. But he's saying, okay, now I'm realizing something deeper about who God is. And God, if this is who you are, then I, he says at the end of verse 21, um, he says, then, so that I will come to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He binds himself, as it were, in the best of his ability, you know, in all of his brokenness to the Lord. He, he says, I'm determined to do this. And that means a lot of things. You know, that means that we repent and come back when we mess up. That means that we follow where he leads. There, there's all sorts of things that are tied up in there. But there is a commitment there. And I guess, you know, that's part of the, the, the story, maybe even the invitation, or could we even say a warning here? You know, if you see God, if you meet him, and, and you recognize that God is the one who breaks into our world, you have to respond. You can't just go on and pretend like, well, I'll, I'll take care of that later, or, you know, I... We're going to coexist for a while, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a theophany. It's an appearance. It's a manifestation that demands a response. And I guess, you know, that's, again, the question, the invitation. Are, are you a person who's maybe in between? Maybe it is purely about your relationship with God, or maybe it's something very specifically that God is asking you to do. You know, a relationship that he's asking you to heal, to pursue healing and reconciliation in. You know, maybe it's about a, a lifestyle that he's challenging you with regards to your pursuing. Maybe it's about the you know, the future and the plans that you have. When you meet God, when you truly hear his voice, you need to respond. And, and notice that he doesn't only say these sort of sacred words. So we've got a sacred place, we've got sacred words, but we also have sacred actions. You know, he, he pours out 
oil and anoints this rock, and it's a symbol of his action. He makes a vow to give a tenth of everything that he owns or receives from the hand of God. He pays it back. And this is something certainly that comes into our lives as well. You know, if you realize the blessings that God has given you, if you uh, are anchored in his promises, are you going to keep everything that he gives you for you, yourself? You know, are you, are you going to use that to, to serve your lifestyle? Are you going to use that, you know, for, to secure your safety? I mean, you are safe. You, you have nothing to fear. Do not be afraid, congregation of the Lord. And part of the response of that is give liberally. You, you don't have to hang on. You don't have to hang on to your 401k so tight. Because God will take care of you. You do not have to, you know, hold on to your time and your talents. You don't have to, you know, keep to a very rigid career path. Look at this stuff I realize is very countercultural. And kids, I, I hope you're listening because we need you to lead us in faith. You know, we... I think sometimes we get older and we just become more settled in our ways and, you know, we, we haven't, we're not really dealing with our fears and realizing how deeply they have uh, impacted us and are holding us back. So give liberally time, talents, money, all of these things because we can. We have nothing to be afraid of. You know, I said earlier, Jacob wasn't a pilgrim when God met him. He was a fugitive. But this is the gospel that transforms. A and here, you know, when we see this story and we come to the end, we recognize that a place where Jacob stopped, Luz, who was incidentally a center of pagan worship, this place becomes a shrine to the living God. This stone that Jacob takes, you know, to lay his head on for the night becomes an altar to a God that has given him a new reality. And this fugitive has indeed become a pilgrim. This is the great grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that it would stir all of our hearts that it would help us unearth some of those fears, look at them through the shining reality of Bethel, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that does indeed come to us and, and, and connect with us at a deep, deep heart level. Father, we're sorry. We really are. We're sorry. We're ashamed. We feel so silly uh, when we see how much our fears drive us on a daily basis. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see that stairway reaching from heaven to earth. Help us to see the Son of Man and in Him all of the graciousness of heaven poured out on us. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us nearer to you. 
that we would know you as our God, that your promises to Jacob would be your promises to us. And may our testimony say, God shall be my God. Yahweh is mine because he has made me so. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.